This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, and welcome to another week of a very unique program. You're about to hear the top stories that aired on Northwest News Radio for this past week, ending September the 17th. A busy schedule you have, maybe only a headline or two. But why, with such a staff of reporters we have and news anchors, give you the story maybe once or twice on the air and then let it go? This is a chance for you to catch up on the stories you missed. And I'm telling you, it's been another busy week here in the Puget Sound and throughout the Northwest. I am Mark Christopher. It's good to have you here. And again, a reminder, these are the top stories of the past week, ending September the 17th. In some examples of warning for the fall ahead when it comes to COVID-19, signs of economic strength in Washington State's unemployment rate. Also, a focus on climate change and what to do about it. All right, let's get to our first story. Local disease modelers have a warning to governments around the world. Be ready if a troublesome new COVID variant emerges, in fact. The first projections out to January 1st from UW's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation show new COVID cases starting to rise in Washington now, with the rest of the country to follow next month. But IHME's Dr. Christopher Murray says they expect a lesser increase in severe illnesses and deaths because of vaccines and antiviral drugs. Murray says if we get a new variant that spreads faster and makes us sicker, quote, all bets are off. So he suggests governments look at which of the mandates worked best. So that we can use those social distancing mandates and measures that are most likely to be beneficial and minimize the economic, education, and social disruption. Murray says since we're no longer doing as good a job tracking new cases, we should consider looking instead at hospital admissions test results since all patients are tested routinely. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Oregon has taken a major step in mobile crisis intervention. The state has received federal approval to be reimbursed for mobile crisis intervention services aimed at Medicaid recipients struggling with mental health and substance use disorders. The grant will enable Oregon to expand a successful crisis intervention model pioneered in Eugene to the rest of the state. That model reworks law enforcement by sending trained mental health responders instead of police to a mental health crisis. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Now for Jeff Polgelo with a story of an expert from the University of Washington saying the end of cancer could be in sight. This week, President Biden made it a national goal to cut cancer deaths by 50% over the next 25 years, and he touted the $1 billion investment in the new Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, or ARPA-H. Oncologist Dr. Nordisis says it couldn't come at a better time as the understanding of cancer has had major advancements in the last decade. Our understanding is so precise into what the major pathways we need to target, not with nonspecific kill-everything chemotherapies, but with very directed treatments. Audio provided by UW Medicine. President Biden also announced that he was naming Renee Weigerson, a top executive from a biotech firm, as the first director of ARPA-H. Jeff Pogel on Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. If you just tuned in or found our podcast as well, we're giving you the top stories of the past week here, ending September the 17th. Welcome to Northwest News Radio. City leaders are moving closer to a new way of responding to 911 calls here in Seattle. Separating violent crimes from mental health episodes. Our working group is doing a site visit to talk with dispatchers. Crisis levels will be rated one through four. City staffer Esther Handy. For medical response, that pairs a firefighter EMT with an HSD case manager 
manager, SPD's crisis response unit that pairs an SPD officer with a mental health professional. 911 call levels three and four are violent crimes that require a sworn police officer, but juggling those calls in real time has critics worried. Councilmember Sarah Nelson. I know that a lot of people say, how do we know what kind of call people are going to be going into? There's no standard yet, but that could change in the coming months, says Esther Handy. Enables the city to test some of these solutions and learn from experience in the field. Trial and error in the field before fully implementing these 911 alternatives in 2024. But critics argue confusion could have deadly consequences. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. Six years after the King County Opioid Task Force released its list of recommendations for addressing the crisis, the number of overdose deaths keeps rising. One of the most recent deaths was the daughter of a task force member. Former Auburn Police Commander Steve Stalker retired early last year due to an injury. As one of four law enforcement members on that opioid task force, few people knew he was living the nightmare. His own daughter, an addict. I never really spoke about it much with very many people. I kept a lot of it in, but when I would hear people speak, I could feel for them. Now, obviously, my child had not passed away yet at that point, but I knew that she could. August 15th, he got that faded call. 30-year-old Natasha was found unresponsive at her mother's house. Stalker says after two years clean and sober, she met a man at work who allegedly sold her the pills, which they believe contained fentanyl. Official toxicology on that, though, will take months. Another takeaway of the task force was the availability of Narcan to reverse an overdose. And while it has saved lives... Stalker says it's also giving addicts a sense of immortality. Getting ready to shoot up heroin. You got your Narcan? Yeah, we got our Narcan. All right. And then they they just shoot up big time because they know if they go out, their friends will save them with the Narcan. Rather than low barrier shelters and lax drug laws, Stalker says he favors compelling users to get help. To let them sit on the street corner and put heroin in their arm. How are we not helping that person and forcing help on that person. Thank you, Carlene. South Carolina's Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says he's introducing a bill banning abortions after 15 weeks, except though in cases of rape, incest, and to save a mother's life. Graham compares it to a largely symbolic Democratic abortion protection bill that failed in the Senate. I don't know how they were going to get to 60 on their bill, (laughs) but I think we'll do better than they did. I think there are a couple Democrats uh, that will be with us, maybe, hope, pray, right? I think the public's with us. Aboard Air Force One, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the Biden administration fighting to protect abortion rights. These actions are wildly out of step with what Americans believe and want from their government. Now, Rachel Rubin has been following the story this past week for the Washington Post. Up to this point, Rachel, many Republicans wanted this to be a state-level issue. How much support does Senator Graham have for his national abortion ban bill? So yesterday I was on Capitol Hill asking um, a lot of Republican senators their response to Senator Graham's legislation that was released yesterday. And what became uh, pretty clear quickly was there wasn't a Republican consensus around the limiting abortions after 15 weeks. And there were a a fair number of Republican senators, key Republican senators, who said that they believed this should be an issue for the states, uh, specifically Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell 
said that, uh, and this quote, most of the members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. Now, what could this mean now for the Republican platform ahead of the midterm elections? Because it's only six weeks away or something. Um, the midterm elections, uh, you know, are definitely on uh, Republican and Democrats' minds here. The midterms are, um, you know, coming up soon, roughly two months away. And this is something that Democrats are really campaigning on. And in terms of Republican messaging, um, a memo to GOP campaigns released this week, the Republican National Committee has laid out what they called uh, a messaging strategy on abortion, which um, was pressing Democrats on where they stand on the procedure. Um, seeking common ground and exceptions um, and keeping the focus on other issues like crime and the economy. The introduction of this bill yesterday, um, you know, really highlighted and, and, you know, raised lots of questions about what, where different candidates, what positions they would support in terms of federal legislation. Rachel Rubine with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for the Washington Post. And you can find her work online at WashingtonPost.com, where we also learn how Democrats are trying to take advantage of the mixed messaging now on abortion access from the GOP. Rachel, thanks for joining us today. That's Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News Radio. City light rates. You'll want to hear this. And Boeing versus Airbus. Just a few stories coming in our next segment. And now, Corwin Haight, though, with a detention center story with a deceptive nickname once operated on Washington State Fairgrounds in Puyallup. Now, local Japanese Americans want to make sure its true nature never forgotten. Officially, it was the Puyallup Assembly Center. It was also known unironically by the nickname a Seattle PI reporter gave it, Camp Harmony, a name Eileen Yamada-Lamphere says the government embraced. If the general public are thinking that these people of Japanese descent are going to Camp Harmony, I mean, who's going to complain, right? The truth is Camp Harmony was a way station for Japanese Americans about to be detained indefinitely at one of 10 Western U.S. internment camps. Now, Lamphere, president of the Puyallup Valley Japanese American Citizens League, wants to open a commemorative gallery on the site as a permanent part of the Washington State Fair. We would like to recognize and honor all of the people that were imprisoned on the fairgrounds. The project has the blessing of fair organizers who are donating space. Already the site features banners bearing the names of more than 7,000 internees. Lamphere hopes her group can raise the funds to open the gallery in time for next year's state fair. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. So much more to come here for Northwest News Radio, ending for the week of September 17th. It's good to have you with us. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Here's Mark Christopher. Looking into some job stories of the past week, Washington's economy continues to show signs of rapid growth. Employers added more than 16,000 new jobs in the month of August, according to the Employment Security Department, and the July number was revised upward from 6,600 to more than 10,000. Unemployment remained steady at 3.7%. Much of the growth came from an increased number of government jobs, as well as jumps in education, health, business, and retail trade. Jeff Pogel on Northwest News Radio. Despite a slow month in August, Boeing booked over two dozen new orders while rival Airbus experienced a major setback. To explain the differences, Kathy O'Shea. 
The Seattle Times reports Boeing booked 26 new orders for commercial jets and delivered 35. In contrast, rival Airbus delivered 39 new jets but had no new orders in August and was also hit with a massive order cancellation worth about $3 billion. In terms of annual orders, Airbus is still well ahead of Boeing with 637 net orders to Boeing's 388. Both manufacturers are struggling with supply chain issues and are lagging behind production forecasts. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Power rates are likely to rise for customers of one local utility, but with a promise of new options to lower bills. Power to homes on Seattle City Light would go up an average of about four bucks or 4.5 percent under a plan just passed by a city council committee. The proposal would also create a basic service charge for non-residential customers to cover costs like billing that would otherwise just be included in the bill. A move City Light's review panel says provides more transparency. Councilmember Sarah Nelson says City Light has a pattern in recent years of reducing or eliminating rate increases when it saves money. And at the same time, costs for generating and distributing electricity went up significantly in the last three years, and inflation keeps driving it up. The proposal also includes a new time-of-day rate program, which would let customers decide to pay less if they want to use most of their power outside peak demand times. The bill goes to the full City Council Tuesday. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and right now we're giving you a chance to catch up to maybe a lot of stories you missed last week here as we recap the week of September the 17th. Welcome to Northwest News Radio. More housing getting a big thumbs up in Bellevue. This follows a new poll of that city's residents. John Lobertini with this story. The poll overwhelmingly suggests Bellevue residents want the city and its government muscle to force change. 65% of residents express support for a hands-on approach. Andrew Villeneuve, Northwest Progressive Institute. 78% of residents agree Bellevue should require developers to reserve a percentage of units as affordable housing. The high cost of housing, they say, is forcing families and seniors out of Bellevue. Housing advocate Debbie Lacey. In January of this year, she was told her rent was going up 28%. She's 67 years old, a Bellevue resident, a grandmother, taking care of two grandchildren. Rent control would require state intervention and new construction moves slowly. Patience Malaba is with the Housing Development Consortium. City planning target for housing. Not too long ago, that number was at 34,000. That number is going up. That's not a 10-year plan. It's a today need. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. If you can't find an affordable house in Seattle, Bellevue, or even Redmond, you may have to look further east. Much further, in fact, says Corwin Hake. Thanks to the rise in remote work, people with jobs in the Seattle area are able to find relatively affordable homes just over the Cascade Mountains in Kittitas County. If you don't like rattlesnakes, do not purchase over here. Pointing at a map, veteran realtor Kitty Wallace is on hand to steer city slickers straight. If you buy a cabin in these locations, in the winter months, you will be snowmobiling in. Wallace sells homes in the Cleelum area, where she tells Crosscut KCTS the age of house bargains there is ending. She tours a relatively new Cleelum housing development. These homes were completed in 2019 and they started at 319 a piece. Now they're right about 600. She means 600,000, of course, which might still sound like a bargain to a Seattle shopper. King County's median home price is 828,000. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. If you live around Ording, chances are you're hearing about some kind of a unique vending machine. And some of the people there are asking why. Fossil fuel investments for the University of Washington, they have a big smile. 
These are just a couple of stories just ahead. People live in them, but will travelers rent them for a night as well? Northwest News Radio's Brian Calvert shares a story of a Northwest couple and their dream of the first tiny hotel. This guest from New York told CNN they were thrilled with the concept. We've got our tiny house. Our children have their tiny house. She was among the first guests at Caravan, a tiny house hotel. It's a collection of tiny homes on wheels, all on one lot, providing six different self-contained rooms. In New York, we think of it as a sacrifice, having to live in a small space. But here it really feels like a privilege. Caravan was a big hit when it opened in Portland's Alberta neighborhood in 2013. A couple of years later, it was featured in Portlandia. Welcome to Tiny Town. Micro village. Little place. And that's a tiny micro house. Yeah. It's very, very efficient. Everything is thought out. No waste of space anywhere. This is a bathroom and a home office. Things were definitely looking up for Tiny Hotel co-founder Cole Peterson. There's a whole movement afoot of people who are really interested in living in smaller spaces and this is one of the only places probably maybe the only place where you can actually come in and test out living in one of these tiny houses. It was a lucrative idea as well, with tiny homes renting for as much as $185 a night. Then came COVID. Nightly rates plummeted, and this week, what's known as the world's first tiny house hotel has closed. One of the tiny homes has been moved, two have been sold, probably to people who like living really close together, like the couple on Portlandia. You're always breathing down the back of my neck. It's like I can feel your hot breath on me all the time. The tiny hotel may be history, but Peterson and partner Deb Delman are airbnb at least one of the tiny homes in their yard these days, and still speaking around the world as to the benefits of the tiny home to those that just don't require 3,000 square feet. Come on, move in. It'll take you five minutes. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Right now, you're catching up to the top stories of the full week here of ending September the 17th. It's Northwest News Radio. We're also available as a podcast at your convenience at nwnewsradio.com. More straight ahead. Northwest This Week continues. It's called the Recovery Cafe in Ording, and soon we'll be getting a new vending machine. In fact, in the coming month, it will dispense Narcan, the overdose reversal medication. The Tacoma Needle Exchange is putting in three Narcan vending machines across the county in hopes of preventing more overdose deaths, with fentanyl the leading cause of those deaths. Stephanie Prohaska tells the News Tribune the goal is to get the addict to want to stop using. We're giving them safer options for the day that they decide they want treatment. This firefighter in Palm Beach told CBS News his department is using Narcan on the same addicts over and over and he doesn't see many people at all seeking to get out of the cycle. There's repeat offenders, you know, that stay in the area that continually do it and they know we're going to come in you know, fix things for lack of a better term. Opioid-related overdose is now the most common cause of accidental death in Pierce County, outnumbering traffic and firearm deaths. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. If we want to hold off rising global temperatures, a local nonprofit leader says we also have to help other countries. Speaking at the annual Cascadia Innovation Corridor Conference, Bill Gates says he's pleased with the progress on the climate he expects from the new sweeping federal investments. But Gates says we also need to invest more in foreign aid to help poorer nations not only to do things like generating more electricity, but to do it in a much cleaner way. Unless we do it a lot 
lot with innovation, then the middle-income countries of the world just aren't going to do it. So government has to take a leading role. The research organizations like the universities have to take a big role. Gates says even with solar and wind power, we need a lot more electricity. And he suggests an often controversial method, nuclear power, which he says can be done even more safely and without carbon emissions with new generation nuclear power plants. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Ryan. Student environmental activists are celebrating as the University of Washington agrees to divest from its fossil fuel company holdings. Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake. The University of Washington Board of Regents says in a statement, by 2027, it will shed from its endowment all direct investments in fossil fuel companies. Those investments amount to only $124 million of a $6 billion endowment. But Peter Fink with the UW's Institutional Climate Action Group believes the action sends a strong message. It sets a standard for which we can hold the university to account. Um, It really also signals that the university is serious about understanding its impact on the world um, and also recognizing the gravity of the climate crisis. Student activists lobbied hard for this divestment. It falls two years short of their goal of divestment by 2025, and Fink says the resolution's language leaves the board some wiggle room. Still, he says... The fact that they passed this resolution is amazing, and everyone should be celebrating that fact. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Tacoma might soon ban homeless encampments in certain parts of the city. The proposal comes from City Councilman John Hines, and it would create a 10-block buffer zone around homeless shelters and supportive housing. We focus on providing shelter and then not allowing people to camp around it, with the idea that they will then move into the shelter that's provided. The council debated the issue for quite a while, and the discussion turned emotional at times. Councilman Joe Bushnell says it will help those in shelters fighting addiction. Creating these buffer zones gives them that opportunity to at least have a few blocks of reprieve if they have to go to work, they have to walk to the bus stop to to take public transit. Yeah, it's not going to cover the entire city, but every single day when they go to work, they're not going to have to go by a drug dealer that's sitting next to that bus stop tempting them. But this was all during a study session for the council, so no votes were taken and nothing was approved or rejected. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Election year politics appear to be the trigger behind a war of words over a jail diversion program for young criminal offenders. County Executive Dow Constantine. We've heard a lot of misinformation about the county's juvenile diversion programs and a false correlation to increased crime. Last month, the mayors of Auburn and Federal Way blamed their crime waves on King County's so-called soft-on-crime stance. Less people think that this is all that we're doing, that we're diverting all our cases away. It's also a hot-button issue on the campaign trail, but prosecuting attorney Dan Satterberg was quick to note diversion is a small piece. The diversion part is really the bright spot. Just last month, my deputy prosecutors filed more than 700 felony charges. The county's restorative justice program is an alternative to incarceration for underage offenders. Sheila Capstani is with Community Services. If we can prevent children and youth from entering the legal system, a system that actually causes harm, our whole community is better off. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. Amazon deliveries and something new, an unrued Blue Origin Space mission came to an early end this past week. These are just more of the stories we have straight ahead here at Northwest News Radio. Right now, we turn to Taylor Van Sice. As come November, many American voters will see a more racially diverse ballot that potentially will send more black Americans to the Senate and governor's mansions this year than in all of the years since the Civil War combined. Tim Craig, looking into this for the Washington Post, Taylor Van Sice with the questions. And Tim, you're focusing on statewide offices in your report, senators and governors. 
How many black candidates have a shot at those offices this time around? Well, it's, it's unclear how many have a shot, but 16 are running or, and are actually the nominees for either Senate or governor in November. So in uh, 16 different races, there will be a um, African-American candidate running for governor or Senate. In some states, even like Georgia and South Carolina, you have a black candidate who's Republican running against a black candidate who's a Democrat. So that those will be the two major um, party nominees on the ballot in those states. Racial justice, of course, top of mind for a lot of voters in the years since the death of George Floyd. But are these candidates that, you, that you're reporting on, are they making explicit appeals to voters based on their race? Um, they're not making explicit appeals. They're not out there running saying, hey, I'm African-American or I'm black, vote for me. But what they are doing, and in some cases quite effectively, is they're, they're reaching back to their own upbringing and their own life stories. You know, some grew up in poverty, some grew up in inner city and tough environments. And they're using that to then translate to the current challenges related to inflation or economic issues and saying, I understand, based on how I grew up, how the struggle Americans are facing today about a variety of issues. And they hope that message sort of crosses racial lines and resonates even with you know, low-income white residents and other minority groups who may identify with the struggle that they live through. Now, race, of course, is it's just it's just one of those things here in the U.S. that we can't get our heads around sometimes. And according to the experts you spoke with, how much of a role does race still play in the minds of American voters, especially white voters, when considering whether or not to cast a ballot for a black candidate? Well, it's a tricky question because, you know, we have gotten, you know, we've, this country has made tremendous progress in the last 30 years. You look at Barack Obama's election, when Barack Obama won, he won many states that have very few African-American voters. Iowa, he won, I believe. Wisconsin, he's won. So, you know, we have made progress. The question, though, is have we made enough progress? And increasingly, you know, some analysts say, yes, race is still there. It's still a barrier and it's still going to be a, a problem for some of these candidates. But other people note that, you know, especially if you're an African-American Democrat running in some places, Democrats already do so poorly with white voters in many states, um, especially uh, working class white voters at this stage, that they don't think that sort of a race alone is going to be what decides these elections. What's going to decide these elections is more just the partisanship and the fact that many white voters have sort of moved away from the Democratic Party. Um, and then, of course, in other states, you have African-Americans running as Republicans. Herschel Walker in Georgia, Senator Scott in South Carolina, and they, you know, they're going to count and rely on white voters to, if they're to be successful um, in those races as well. So that's why race is tricky. I mean, I think it would be naive to say it doesn't matter at all. But at the same time, there are signs that we are sort of moving farther away from it being the, the determinant factor in elections. Tim Craig with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post. You can also see how the question and debate over abortion plays into these uh, candidates' uh, platforms as well, specifically in the race for Florida Senate between Congresswoman Val Demings and the incumbent Marco Rubio. That's online at WashingtonPost.com from Tim Craig. I'm Mark Christopher. You are in tune to Northwest News this week, where you can catch up to the top stories of this past week, ending September 17th. And more to catch up on just ahead. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. 
Welcome back. Work-life balance was one of the big sticking points as freight rail workers negotiated their new tentative contract. Ryan Harris spoke with a Seattle Railroad attorney. Jim Vucinovich's past clients include several people involved in the DuPont derailment, as well as railroad workers he says not only haul food and other goods, but hazardous and even nuclear material. Vucinovich says they have to be on a two-hour call around the clock and that they're subject to attendance policies, not collectively bargained, that can get them fired if they take too much time off. These guys are constantly in fear of being disciplined for just taking routine life decisions and actions like I need to go to the doctor or I want to be off for my kid's birthday party. Vucinovich tells me companies like Burlington Northern Santa Fe operate on what he says is a profit-driven model with a minimum workforce that isn't sustainable. BNSF sent me a statement which says it couldn't deliver without its workers and that it appreciates their willingness to reach an agreement to avert the potential interruption of service. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. This past week brought news of the death of Joseph Hazelwood. He was at the controls of the Exxon Valdez and one of the worst environmental disasters here in U.S. history. John Libertini takes us back more than 30 years. It was just after midnight on March 24, 1989. The Exxon Valdez ran aground in Alaska's Prince William Sound, spilling 11 million gallons of oil. Years later, Hazelwood would recount the disaster on Witnify, a program dedicated to eyewitness accounts. As I picked up the receiver, he said, I think we're in trouble. I don't know if that's panic or terror. I knew something was dreadfully wrong. I came over and I could see the oil boiling up. The oil spread more than 460 miles and ravaged 1,300 miles of coastline and marine habitats. People said you could smell the fumes from miles away, but it's what they saw that still haunts them today. This is how KTVA television remembered it during a special marking the 30th anniversary of the spill. Carcasses of animals and birds, among them 2,800 sea otters and a quarter of a million seabirds. Waters that once gave life now brought death and disease. There were bigger oil spills, but few came close to this ecological disaster. Joseph Hazelwood was 75 years old. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. An unrued Blue Origin space mission came to an early end early this past week. It was a booster failure. The New Shepard rocket was barely a minute into its flight when bright yellow flames shot out from around the single engine. The capsule, with its payload of scientific experiments, parachuted to the ground safely just minutes after its launch escape system engaged, while the rocket crashed to the ground with no injuries or damage reported. The Federal Aviation Administration has grounded the rocket pending the outcome of its investigation into the incident. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. And now Jeff Poljula, who says Amazon will contribute nearly half a billion dollars to its delivery partners. Many of Amazon's delivery drivers are not technically employed by the company. Instead, they work for third-party groups that are part of Amazon's delivery service partners program. The separation means that the company is somewhat shielded from liability. But according to Geekwire, that relationship is now under scrutiny as many of the drivers look to unionize. Amazon's response was to contribute $450 million to its partners that will boost the driver's retirement and educational benefits. The Delivery Service Partners Program now employs more than 3,000 independent companies that deliver more than 10 million Amazon packages a day. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. In our next segment, food and film come to mind for a couple of big stories this past week. 
For right now, though, a couple of lawsuits that grabbed our attention. A lawsuit filed by a group of Washington State Patrol officers alleging wage theft because the state won't pay them for time spent commuting in their marked patrol cars. The troopers have filed suit in Pierce County as a class action, saying they are on duty when they commute to work in their patrol cars and to not pay them for that time is unfair. In court papers quoted by the Tacoma News Tribune, the troopers say, commuting or not, when they are behind the wheel of that car, they they are required to take dispatch calls and respond to emergencies. The lawsuit asks for back pay, damages, and attorney fees. Washington State Patrol is not commenting on the pending litigation. A federal court already has ruled on a similar complaint. In 2018, the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals held the time police officers spend commuting in patrol vehicles is not compensable. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. And another lawsuit that comes to mind, attorneys have filed a court order asking a judge to not allow any more admissions to a state-run institution. As Northwest News Radio's Brian Calvert sharing here, the lawyers already have a lawsuit labeling the facility a dangerous place to live. Let's give a listen. The attorneys represent both a current and former resident of Rainier School in Buckley. The care home for those with developmental and intellectual disabilities is run by the State Department of Social and Health Services. According to the lawsuit, it has about 120 current residents. The legal action claims clients were denied dental care and that Rainier School is significantly understaffed. Two of Rainier School's three residential facilities have been decertified for being out of compliance to qualify for the Medicaid program. While citing a policy of not commenting on pending litigation, DSHS spokesperson Lisa Pemberton told the News Tribune via email, We can say, however, that our priority is to always do what is in the very best interest and safety for our clients. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. Still plenty of more stories for you to catch up on as we recap this week of September 17th here at Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Now, for the subject of food, you likely have a favorite restaurant or perhaps quite a list. Right now, Brian Calvert takes us to a fairly new eatery with an inclusive concept that's attracting customers from other states. And it all began with a for rent sign. So we came to eat here one day and we saw this was for rent and we just asked about it and it was available and, and it was really easy and cheap to get in. So we're like, let's do it. Victor Covarubias wanted to open a burger joint. Nothing fancy, just good food that made customers feel comfortable. Customers that may not feel as comfortable in other restaurants. Right about now, another man gets Victor's attention. You're about to hear Victor speak again as he interprets the sign language of his husband, Lelouis Barrios. So really long time ago, when I was young, I remembered places having deaf night out, like at different bars and restaurants in California. When the couple saw that for rent sign in Southeast Portland, the ideas began simmering, like that quarter pound burger on the grill. My question, and I asked myself, what if what if when I'm older, I open up a bar restaurant like that? Victor and Louie knew exactly the kind of space they wanted to create. Good food in a spot used to unite, not divide. All are welcome, especially those in the LGBTQ plus and deaf communities. They named the restaurant PA, P-A-H, which is ASL slang for finally. 
All the different items on the menu are all ASL slang words. Lalui through Victor tells KPTV.com about their fish and chips meal. The on the menu it says it's called Finnish. The sign language for that is it's almost like fish. Now you know how far you're willing to drive or the effort you're willing to make to go to your favorite eatery. Pa's customers appear even more willing to make more effort. So in fact, there's been a lot of deaf people that have been coming from out of state, out of Oregon, either driving here, flying here. They come here to visit Pa. <laughs> Did you hear that? Victor almost sounds surprised when he says that. Lalui's sister, a regular customer, says he shouldn't be surprised. She says the food's really good. More importantly, for the two communities Pa is most passionate about, they find a safe space and some good food. You might just say it feels like home. We'll get you. Don't worry. <laughs> just come on. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. All right, so there's that food story I wanted to get to. And now about film, you might see more cameras around Seattle, but these cameras will be aimed at TV and movie actors. Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris telling us about plans for a new film commission and how it's coming together. After speaking at the recent Seattle Film Summit, Councilmember Sarah Nelson says Montana's film commissioner told her the industry won't take you seriously without a film commission. So the ordinance before a council committee would create such a commission, a proposal that has the support of King County's Creative Economy Director and Seattle International Film Festival Director Tom Mara. I'm really excited about the commission being able to be an accelerant economic for the film industry. There are so many different kinds of jobs that are going to be upheld by any strategy moving forward. The commission could not only foster more living wage jobs and line up with what's happening in King County and the state, which has $15 million in production tax incentives, but it would also be tasked with making sure productions meet gender and racial equity standards. A unanimous vote sends the measure to the full council this Tuesday. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Now, Ryan's story there proof why we have the show of Northwest News Radio this week. So we can give you the original story. And, of course, this story is going to require some follow-up. So stay tuned in the coming days to Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week. You can catch it each and every week at this very time here on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000, FM 97.7, also at KPLZ 101.5 HD Channel 2. It's also available as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. And if you like the convenience of a podcast to listen to it whenever you want, we hope you'll share a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Northwest News this week, ending for the week of September the 17th, produced by Bill O'Neill, our editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. On behalf of everyone here at Northwest News Radio, thank you for listening. and Have a good week.